following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Good to see you today. A little burst of excitement there to get you woken up. I'm going to pray and we are going to jump right into our study of our confession of faith. Let's pray together. Lord, you are gracious and merciful. You are kind. You are loving and patient, and we are so thankful to be your people. We're grateful, Lord, for this opportunity that you give to us on your day to gather together and to study your word and to be reminded of the great sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. We are reminded of the beauty of the gospel, and we are instructed on how it is worked out in our lives day by day. And so we pray, Lord, that you help us today to focus our hearts and our minds and our souls upon the risen Christ. And we pray that you would be honored and glorified in everything that we set out to do here today. We ask, Lord, for your blessing upon this time as we study your word, as we consider our great confession of faith. And we pray also for Uh, the other Sunday school classes, Lord, that you would be with our teachers, that you would give them clarity of mind and communication with our students, Lord, with all of our children, that you would be working in their hearts each and every day as they hear the gospel, that you would bring them to the end of themselves, that they might trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray now, Lord, for your help and for your blessing, and we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we continue looking at our confession of faith this morning, we are going to look at chapter 30 of the Lord's Supper. And uh, last time we looked at baptism, so now we consider the other ordinance of the church, the Lord's Supper, and uh, we won't make it all the way through uh, this chapter this morning, but we'll get maybe, hopefully, about halfway through. Uh, Chapter 30 consists of eight paragraphs. I've summarized them in this way. Paragraph one, the institution of the Lord's Supper. Paragraph two, the memorial nature of the Lord's Supper. Three, the administration of the Lord's Supper. Paragraph four, the improper uses of the Lord's Supper. And this is probably about as far as we'll get today, but the remainder are paragraph five, the elements of the Lord's Supper. Paragraph six, the nature of the Lord's Supper. Paragraph seven, the Lord's Supper as a means of grace. And finally, paragraph eight, the proper recipients of the Lord's Supper. Now, with only a few notable differences, chapter 30 is nearly identical to what we see in the Congregationalist uh, Savoy Declaration and the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, the agreement here is not insignificant for even a cursory glance at many of the Reformation and post-Reformation debates amongst Reformers show that there were at least four different views on the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, and each one of them had equally impassioned supporters. Also, while the Lord's Supper is explicitly identified as being important and necessary to be practiced within the church, the theological basis for understanding the nature of the Supper is not as robustly given to us in the scriptures as many of the other doctrines that we believe. 
And so this can't be examined rightly without considering historical theology alongside uh, the doctrine that we see from the scriptures. In fact, debates about the supper often hinge only on a few words within the biblical text, and so it leads to various nuances that are uh, important to scrutinize. Now, at the heart of the controversy was the question of the presence of Christ. And the majority of Christians have always confessed that Christ is actually present in the Lord's Supper. And so it's been understood as an ordinance in which believers are actually uh, communing with the Lord Jesus in a very real sense. But this is where the consensus ends because there are various ideas of how he is present in the supper. And the particular Baptist found substantial agreement with the majority of confessional Christians in the Reformed tradition. So let's consider what our confession says. In paragraph one, we see the institution of the Lord's Supper. And it says, the supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him the same night wherein he was betrayed to be observed in his churches unto the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance and showing to all the world the sacrifice of himself in his death, confirmation of the faith of believers and all the benefits thereof, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe to him and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other. And so this paragraph begins by identifying the institution of the Lord's Supper on the same night wherein the Lord Jesus was betrayed. The supper was given to the church as a positive command from the sovereign Christ. And we talked about that back in chapter 28. So I'm not going to go into that language again. You can go and uh, look at that uh, lesson on that um, chapter. The final meal that Jesus shared with his disciples just prior to his betrayal by Jesus and arrest was the traditional uh, Passover meal. And Obviously, we can read about that, and we'll, when we get there in Exodus, we'll spend a lot of time thinking about what the Passover meal was, but this was sort of the precursor to the Lord's Supper. It was to be a continual reminder to the Jewish people of the salvation that God brought to his covenant people through the judgment that he visited on the land of Egypt because of their mistreatment of the Israelites. He commanded them to slaughter a lamb, to smear the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their homes, and the people were to eat the supper of lamb with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And that very night, remember, the Lord passes through Egypt. He strikes down all the firstborn of the land, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt. And the Lord proclaimed, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And at his final Passover meal, the Lord Jesus injected the meal with a new significance, and it's related to his imminent death. Matthew 26, 26 through 28 says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, 
This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So very clearly, Jesus associated the bread of the supper with his body that would be broken in the cup associated with his blood that would be shed. And he called it the blood of the covenant. That is the new covenant that would be instituted through his death and resurrection. And so while the Passover meal was a reminder to God's old covenant people of his acting on their behalf to secure their freedom from physical slavery, the Lord's Supper was to be a reminder to God's new covenant people of God's acting on their behalf to uh, free them from the slavery uh, that is spiritual in our sin. And so the Lord's Supper is for the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ to be observed as we gather for corporate worship. The distinction is critical. It's an ordinance that cannot be observed in a private manner, unlike the other means of grace that we have, like reading our Bibles or, uh, or prayer. These kinds of means of grace we do in our homes, but the Lord's Supper is reserved for the corporate gathering of the church. We shouldn't be at our dining room tables Uh, serving what we call the Lord's Supper. It's also to be observed, the confession says, unto the end of the world. There's no time in which the Lord's Supper should be considered an obsolete observance until Christ returns and believers are gathered together to feast with Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Apostle Paul records the instructions of Jesus regarding the Lord's Supper for the believers in uh, Corinth. He writes that they are, followed, they are to follow this pattern that has been established as often as the bread is eaten and the cup is drank, indicating it, this is this ongoing ordinance until the Lord Jesus returns and we're all gathered together for the marriage supper of the Lamb. The church should continue the practice of the Lord's Supper. Now, this paragraph goes into uh, the purposes of the supper, and it identifies eight different purposes. The first is perpetual remembrance. Now, one significant benefit of the Lord's Supper is that believers are called to remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on their behalf. And Luke records Jesus' words, remember, do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, the Apostle Paul Uh, instructs uh, the believers of Jesus' words in 1 Corinthians 11, do this in remembrance of me. And so those who partake of the Lord's Supper are to remember that Jesus gave himself up to have his body broken, to have his blood shed, to pay the penalty for our sin, so that by faith we might receive everlasting life. And this remembrance is not merely us sort of recalling a historical fact of something that happened, but it should be remembrance of a deep uh, spiritual significance where we as believers are reminded that Christ died for us. It should be received as an act of worship where our hearts are, are filled with thankfulness and joy because Christ has set us free. And so it is a perpetual remembrance. 
Secondly, it shows the sacrifice of Christ. The Apostle Paul notes that observing the Lord's Supper in the church is an ordinance where we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's a physical representation of the great act of Christ's sacrifice that is situated at the heart of the gospel message. It's to be proclaimed to all the world, and one way that it is, it is accomplished, one way the gospel is proclaimed to all the world is through the church's regular observance of the Lord's Supper. We say the Lord's Supper is a physical representation of a spiritual truth, and that is the gospel itself. Third, the Lord's Supper confirms the faith of believers. When we observe the Lord's Supper, it serves to strengthen our faith. By partaking of these elements, we are doing several things. We are, we are reaffirming our trust in Christ. Uh, we receive confirmation of our belief in the sufficiency and efficacy of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. And we're reminded that we are in communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. He lived and died for us on our behalf. And so the particular Baptists reject the Roman Catholic idea of the Lord's Supper um, and how the Lord's Supper acts, which they call ex opere operato. And that is uh, that grace is imparted to a person by virtue of them partaking of the elements. And so it really is the idea that it doesn't matter what your spiritual state is. If you partake of these elements, then grace is working within you. And so they rejected this idea, and they emphasized that the elements are to be received by faith. And so the words of Christ are recorded by the Apostle Paul that remind us, this is my body which is for you. Fourth, spiritual nourishment. Now the intent of the confession is not to say that the Lord's Supper is to be of such a significant size that it provides physical nourishment to uh, the believer's body, but rather that our soul is nourished through the ordinance, like a tree planted by streams of water, like we read in Psalm uh, 1. It speaks of growth in Christ. The nourishment of the Lord's Supper results in spiritual growth. And so if a tree is planted by streams of water, what happens? It yields fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. And so while it's unlikely that a a Christian will perceive instantaneous spiritual growth as we partake of the elements of the supper, like all of the means of grace, it serves to conform us all the more to the image of the Son. We see that it is to aid in further engagement in our duties owed to Christ. When Christians are reminded through the Lord's Supper of the benefits and the blessings that are purchased by Christ, we're stirred up to greater engagement in our faithful service unto the Lord. The Holy Spirit works in the heart of the believer. It encourages uh, the faithful uh, fulfillment of good works that God has prepared uh, for us in the kingdom of God. And it reminds us that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so in the holy remembrance of Christ's sacrifice, the believer is moved to spiritual action. And we have this renewed commitment to Christ, and we are reminded of what it is that we owe to Christ. 
in our service. It's an acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord and the only right response is submitting ourselves to his calling and to his will in our lives. Number seven, it is a bond and a pledge of communion with Christ. And we will see this later in paragraph five in even more detail, but it's a powerful reminder of our communion with Christ by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is present with the church in the Lord's Supper. And so Paul writes that by partaking of the cup, we are together, we are drinking of one spirit. He also identifies that communion is a participation or being in fellowship with the blood of Christ. And breaking the bread is a participation or being in fellowship with Christ. And so the Lord's Supper is more than a mere memorial. It's not just a remembrance. There's more to it than that. It extends beyond the remembrance to an actual spiritual engagement between Christ and his people. And finally, it points out that it is a bond and pledge of communion with other believers. Remember Jesus' final Passover meal. He's gathered with the disciples and an understanding of Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 10 shows that the Lord's Supper is not just communion with Christ, but also communing with the people of God. And as Christians, we come to the table and we do so with the understanding that we are making a claim that we are truly in communion with other brothers and sisters in Christ, that we are are sharing in the life of the body together. This is one reason why here at EBC we insist that in order to partake of the Lord's Supper that a person be a member of a church because we're, we're proclaiming that we are in true union or communion with, uh, with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And if we've not committed ourselves to that uh, by um, submitting to the church and its authority in our lives, uh, then uh, we are, are making a faulty claim here. And so Paul reminds the Corinthians, just as in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, believers are made to drink of one spirit. <coughs> And so this is uh, paragraph one telling us about the institution of the Lord's Supper and uh, several of its purposes. It goes on in paragraph two to deal more with this issue of the memorial nature of the Lord's Supper. Remember I said it's more than a memorial, but it is a memorial uh, for certain. So the paragraph says, in this ordinance, Christ is not offered up to his father, nor any real sacrifice made at all for remission of sin of the quick, and, uh, quick or dead, but only a memorial of that one offering up of himself by himself upon the cross once for all. And a spiritual oblation of all possible praise unto God for the same. So that the popish sacrifice of the mass, as they call it, is most abominable injurious to Christ's own sacrifice, the alone propitiation for all the sins of the elect. And so the second paragraph is a rejection of the Roman Catholic understanding of the Eucharist. Now, while Roman Catholic theologians will assert that Christ was offered once for all, what they deny uh, 
they deny that they understand that the, the Mass is a re-sacrificing of Christ, and they call it a representation of the sacrifice. But <coughs> here's what their catechism says. It calls the Mass a divine sacrifice of the Eucharist, and that through the sacrifice, the work of our redemption is accomplished. That's very strong language. Furthermore, the claim is that the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. The victim is one and the same. The same now offers through the ministry of priests who then offered himself on the cross. Only the manner of offering is different. And since in this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and offered in an unbloody manner, this sacrifice is truly propitiatory. And so, the Roman Catholic Church concludes that the Eucharist can make reparation for the sins of the living and the dead, and it is to be considered a true and proper sacrifice of those who partake of this sacrament. Catholic theologians argue that the Eucharist is of divine and uncreated substance. And so they say it is a, it is a uh, representation. It's not a re-sacrificing of Christ uh, because they would say uh, that that implies that the Son of God is reincarnate or recreated. And so really it's just a, it's a semantic thing to get around uh, what their catechism explicitly states. And so they argue that the sacrifice of the Mass is the same sacrifice of God the Son that took place on Calvary, and that eternal sacrifice is being represented every time the Mass is observed. And so uh, within the Roman Catholic idea or understanding of what the Lord's Supper is, uh, many of you know they believe in what is called transubstantiation. Now, transubstantiation goes to this question I mentioned in the beginning with regard to uh, the presence of Christ in the elements as the church partakes of the Lord's Supper. And the basic idea of transubstantiation comes from uh, the um, philosophy, the philosophical understanding uh, that was given to them uh, through Aristotle and uh, Thomas Aquinas, their, their premier theologian, uh, he used the ideas of Aristotle to uh, conclude that Christ is actually physically present in the supper. But how can that be? Because it's still bread and it's still wine. And so they made a distinction between what are called substance and accidents. And the substance is the actual substance that you see, the bread and the wine. And it always appears to be that way. It always tastes that way. And it appears as though nothing has changed. But the accidents are those things that, uh, that make up the substance. They are that which is sort of the unseen reality of the substance. And so their contention is that the substance remains the same, whereas the accidents change. Now again, this is Aristotelian uh, philosophy adopted by the Roman Catholic Church through Thomas Aquinas. And so this is what they use to explain how it is that Christ is actually physically present in the supper. Now, of course, I want to 
point out that there's nothing even remotely close to this found in the scriptures. Uh, There's nothing that would even touch on this being a reality. And nevertheless, this is uh, what leads to them believing that the Lord's Supper is something that if you simply partake of it, you're partaking of the actual body and actual blood of Christ, and therefore you, uh, you have grace brought into uh, your life, despite whether or not you're doing so by faith. And so the Reformed confessions all repudiate this error very strongly. Our confession again says, in this ordinance, Christ is not offered up to his father, nor any real sacrifice made at all for the remission of sins of the quick or the dead, but only a memorial of that one offering up of himself by himself upon the cross once for all. And so it's a denial of any representation or, or repetition of the sacrifice of Christ that is being made over and over and over as Rome claims. The propitiatory sacrifice of Christ was once for all and it happened on the cross at Calvary and this sacrifice was sufficient for the remission of sins. That's a very important thing for us to remember and to proclaim. Christ died, Christ forgives us by faith, and his sacrifice was once for all. And our salvation is by faith alone, not by uh, things like taking the Lord's Supper. Is it good and right and important and necessary in the church? Yes. Is it necessary for our salvation? No. And that's an important distinction that has to be made. And so the Lord's Supper in no way provides forgiveness of any kind, but it is a memorial of his sacrifice to the elect. However, the language of the supper being but only a memorial must not be understood, as I mentioned before. The particular Baptists, as opposed to some other Baptist sects, like um, what we would call General Baptists or the Anabaptists, the particular Baptists were not memorialists, and we'll see that in paragraph 7 later on. But the point being made is that the Lord's Supper is a memorial, or it's a remembrance of the sacrifice that was made by Jesus. There's no repetition of this. It was a perfect sacrifice. There was no need to repeat it. And so the Lord's, the Lord's statement upon the cross, it is finished is all important in this conversation. When Christ died, the debt of the elect was paid in full. Now the confessional statement that Christ offered up himself by himself on the cross is intended to emphasize that Jesus is the great high priest. He is the everlasting priest as opposed to the priests of the old covenant. Remember the old covenant priests, they had that very uh, Difficult, and I would say in many ways terrible job to offer daily sacrifices. But Christ's sacrifice was once for all. He offered himself as his one-time sacrifice was final and sufficient. Uh, Keith Matheson writes on this. He says, uniquely in the history of redemption, Jesus Christ was both priest and lamb. Because of the sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified, and so that would be the the elements of the supper itself signifying what Christ accomplished in his death, 
When Christians partake of the bread and wine, they partake of the body and blood of Christ. They partake of the lamb who was already sacrificed once and for all. They do not participate in the already completed once for all self-offering of Christ, which only he as the great high priest could legitimately accomplish. The offering of the sacrificial lamb and the eating of the already offered sacrificial lamb are two different acts. I hope that makes sense. So John Calvin explains that the sacrifice is to be celebrated in the Lord's Supper and it was by Christ alone because no other could and once because the efficacy and power of the one sacrifice performed by Christ is eternal as he declared by his voice when he said it is finished. That is, that everything necessary to regain the favor of the Father, to procure forgiveness of sins, righteousness, and salvation, that all this was performed and consummated by his one oblation, and that hence nothing was wanting. No place was left for another sacrifice. It's a great summary of what our confession is saying. There's only one sacrifice, and we remember that sacrifice in the Lord's Supper. We don't recreate it, represent it, or um, we certainly don't re-sacrifice. And so the confession goes on to speak of it being a spiritual oblation of, of praise. I know that's very clear to all of you. We all use that language all the time, right? The confession <clears throat> uses this word. The word oblation is from the Latin verb offero, which means to offer. But unlike an offering, it is almost exclusively, this is the dictionary definition, almost exclusively restricted to matters religious. In the English Bibles, oblation, offering, gift, sacrifice, they're used indiscriminately for anything presented to God in worship or for the service of the temple and the priests. Now, it may seem odd that the Baptists would use in the confession to repudiate the teaching of the Roman Catholic heir, the calling of the Lord's Supper a sacrifice, while in the same, um, the, the same paragraph referring to the supper as a spiritual oblation. <clears throat> but again, sorry for the lengthy quotes, but I think Calvin's explanation here is very helpful. Hopefully you can see that. He says, this kind of sacrifice has nothing to do with appeasing God, with obtaining remission of sins, with procuring justification, but is wholly employed in magnifying and extolling God since it cannot be grateful and acceptable to God unless at the hand of those who, having received forgiveness of sins, have already been reconciled and freed from guilt. For in this sense, we may understand the prophecy. From the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, and in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the heathen, said the Lord of hosts. So far are we from doing away with this sacrifice. Thus Paul beseeches us by the mercies of God to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, our reasonable service. Here he speaks very significantly when he adds that this service is reasonable, for he refers to the spiritual mode of worshiping God and tacitly opposes it to the carnal sacrifices of the Mosaic law. 
Thus, to do good and communicate are called sacrifices with which God is well pleased. Thus, the kindness of the Philippians in revealing Paul's want is called an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. And thus, all the good works of believers are called spiritual sacrifices. So, all of that to say that the believer's participation in the Lord's Supper is accompanied by rendering all possible praise unto God and giving thanks. And so since the supper offers spiritual and not physical benefit, the thanks that is given for the supper is for Christ and not the elements in and of themselves. The elements are bread and wine, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. It is a heartfelt a sacrifice of our hearts as we are praising God for the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a public proclamation of the good news of what Jesus Christ has accomplished. And so it is praise that is repeatedly offered in the Lord's Supper and not Jesus himself. Now this is an important point. You've heard me say often that the Lord's Supper, as we partake of it, I think a lot of Christians come to the table and a lot of churches sort of encourage this idea that we come to the table in sort of this very uh, somber and very dour almost uh, way of doing it. It's like a funeral dirge needs to be played and people are sort of... um, beating themselves up over their sin and just uh, making this a very dark sort of remembrance. But what does is, what is our confession tell us? That this is a, um, it's, we're remembering what Christ accomplished, that we could have everlasting life. We are, um, we are presenting in a physical sense the truth of the gospel and what Christ has accomplished for us. We are praising God. We are to be worshiping God out of a heart of faithfulness and joy for what Christ has accomplished. How could this be anything other than an actual celebration? That we are delighting in Christ and all that he has accomplished. Yes, we, come, we want to come to the table having um, confessed our sins to the Lord. And uh, as uh, the Bible says, that we are, are worshiping with clean hands and pure hearts. That's our great desire. Uh, but we have been forgiven in Christ. And this is a, a uh, remembrance of what he has done in order to do that. Why wouldn't we celebrate that? But why instead would we come as though we were going to a funeral? It is a celebratory uh, um, gift that has been given to the church. And so the conclusion is that, uh, the confession says that the popish sacrifice of the mass, as they call it, is most abominable, injurious to Christ's own sacrifice, that alone propitiation for all the sins of the elect. And so the representation of Christ that calls for a continued offering destroys the biblical truth that Christ has once for all offered up himself. Such blasphemous and unbiblical doctrine should be repudiated in the strongest terms. Now, when we, when we think about worship, we come, we gather together, we utilize the means of grace, and, and they're all present in our worship. Um, but generally, in Protestant churches, we, we think that sort of um, the high point of our gathering of worship together is the preaching of the Word of God. Uh, that this is uh, where uh, the Lord speaks to us from his word through his servants. Um, in 
Roman Catholicism, the preaching of the word is, uh, is really um, barely existent. There's maybe 10 or 15 minutes of a homily from a priest and then everything is focused on uh, the Eucharist or the re-sacrificing of Christ upon an altar. And uh, another distinction there is that Roman Catholic churches have altars. We do not have an altar. And so even the, the term that is often used in uh, more general Baptist circles and broader evangelicalism of doing an altar call um, or coming to the altar to pray, well, what happens at an altar? A sacrifice is made, but we don't have an altar. We have a table where a meal is shared. We have a pulpit where the word is proclaimed, but we don't have an altar because we're not making a sacrifice. And, and the Roman Catholic Mass, the, the Eucharist, is the highlight of, uh, of what they do because we've gone through everything and now the priest quietly to himself sort of mumbles the, the mantra that he goes through and when he proclaims, I'm not being funny, he proclaims hocus pocus, um, the elements transubstantiate. And now all of a sudden, uh, the accidents have changed and the substance has remained the same so that now they can partake of the actual body and blood of Christ. That is blasphemy. And we must repudiate that. All right, paragraph three, the administration of the Lord's Supper. Her confession says, the Lord Jesus hath in this ordinance appointed his ministers to pray and bless the elements of bread and wine and thereby to set them apart from a common to a holy use and to take and break the bread, to take the cup and they communicating also themselves to give both to the communicants. Now this explains how the Lord's Supper is to be administered to the people of God. It is a solemn duty of a minister to pray and bless the elements of the bread and the wine. Now unlike Again, and I keep bringing this up because this is what was in the minds of the writers of the confession. They're rejecting the heirs of Rome. And so unlike the Roman Catholic Mass, the celebration of the Lord's Supper in Christ Church is a corporate enterprise. It's for all of us. And so the prayers of the ministers are offered in a way that everyone can hear and everyone can confirm and say amen. The prayer that is offered to God, asking him to bless the elements of the supper, is to ask God to set them apart for, from a common to a holy use. This is not to suggest that the bread and the wine become anything other than what they are, bread and wine. Furthermore, it's not to suggest that the bread and wine are suddenly made to be holy and uh, be anything other than bread and wine. The point is that the people of God, through the prayers of those administering the supper, are asking him to bless the elements for a specific use in the Lord's Supper. And that in, in so doing this, we're setting them apart from the common use to be used to signify the body and blood of Christ. In other words, the consecration of the elements is the change of their use from one that is common to now being used in something that is sacred. They are only holy in the sense that they're being set aside, set apart, and used for a holy purpose. 
This is consistent with the example of Christ during the Passover meal. As Mark records in Mark 14, he took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. So the confession also identifies uh, the proper pattern in which the supper should be served with the minister first taking and breaking the bread And the the breaking of the bread is a symbolic representation of Christ's body being broken for those who are in Christ by faith and nothing more. Nevertheless, as a physical proclamation of the gospel, it is important that the symbolism is present. There's a lot of symbolism in what we do in the Lord's Supper. Secondly, the confession states that the minister is to take the cup and serve both elements to the communicants, in other words, the participants of the Lord's Supper, and also himself. There is never a scenario in which it would be appropriate for a minister to partake of the elements apart from the gathering of the congregation to do the same. Nor would it be appropriate for the minister to refrain from taking the elements while serving them to others. If there is a compelling reason for the minister to not observe the Lord's Supper, he is unqualified to administer the ordinance. And so that doesn't mean necessarily that a man is disqualified from ministry, but maybe there is an issue in which it should be determined that at this moment in time, he should not be partaking of the Lord's Supper. Well, if he can't partake of it, he certainly should not be serving it. And so um, this, uh, this will get into why uh, the next paragraph gets into why it was important that this, uh, this emphasis was made with regard to everyone doing this together and the minister and the congregation partaking of it together as they go into paragraph four and deal with the improper use of the Lord's Supper. It says the denial of the cup to the people Worshiping the elements, the lifting them up or carrying them about for adoration and reserving them for any pretended religious use are all contrary to the nature of this ordinance and to the institution of Christ. Again, a repudiation of a number of errors found in Roman Catholic theology with regard to the Lord's Supper. The Holy Eucharist, as they call it, is the central element of Roman Catholic Mass. And so these errors are not minor Uh, They are very significant. To eliminate the Eucharist would be to dismantle the Roman Catholic Mass. And to dismantle the Mass would be an obliteration of the Roman Catholic Church. May it be so. The Protestants had nothing short of this in mind. This is exactly what they desired. And so the first error that is mentioned is the denial of the cup. There were several instances throughout the history of the Roman Catholic Church when clergy were instructed to withhold the cup from the people. They would give them the bread, but not the cup. And so various reasons are provided, one being that they did not want anyone to take the elements with them for superstitious purposes. And so the idea was that they would take the cup and hold it in their mouth and maybe spit it into something and take it with them for some superstitious reason afterwards. Uh, By the 5th century, Popes Leo and Galatius declared that withholding the cup was a heretical practice, but by the end of the 11th century, the practice emerged once again. 
E.J. Bicknell writes, withholding the cup was condemned by the Council of Claremont in 1095 and again by Pope Paschal II in 1118, but the practice spread during the next two centuries and was defended by ecclesiastical writers. The change was made gradually. Aquinas, who died in 1274, only speaks of it as the custom of many churches. Evidence of the survival of primitive practice is found as late as the middle of the 14th century, When the Council of Constance met in 1415, it was widely hoped that the abuse would be checked. Unhappily, communion in one kind was formally adopted as the official practice of the church. The council claimed for the church the power of ordering that the sacrament should be given to the laity in one kind only. In other words, just the bread. And so the Catholic Catechism says that since Christ is sacramentally present under each of the species, communion under the species of bread alone makes it possible to receive all the fruit of Eucharistic grace. For pastoral reasons, this manner of receiving communion has been legitimately established as the most common form in the Latin rite. But the sign of communion is more complete when given under both kinds, since in that form, the sign of the Eucharistic meal appears more clearly. And so that's the classic non-answer, right? Um, And you see this often. If you were to go into a Catholic mass today, most people will partake of the wafer that they serve, but will not drink of the cup. But in Roman Catholic theology, that is perfectly Uh, good, even though at one point an infallible pope declared it was heresy. Now in England, the resistance to the withholding of the cup was so strong that uh, one historian explains that the cup could not be withdrawn without without the introduction of an unconsecrated drink, which was given ostensibly to assist in the degulation of the blessed sacrament under the form of bread but probably to pacify the people for the loss of the divine chalice. In other words, they're serving something that hasn't been consecrated by the priest. And so it's just a normal cup of wine instead of one that has been uh, magically turned into the blood of Christ. And so the result was that only the the priest partook of the cup himself and on behalf of the people. And this is still accepted today it is obviously in stark contrast to the words of Jesus in Matthew 26, 27. Drink from it. What does he say? All of you. Drink from it, all of you, not just the priests. And in fact, it became such a common practice and, and something uh, that large ter- churches, they would provide the elements for everyone in the congregation, but no one would partake of it. But it's the blood of Christ, and you can't just leave it sitting around. It might go bad. And so what did the priest have to do? He had to drink all of it. Well, what happens when you drink enough wine for the entire congregation? You finish the mass a little drunk. And so it's a very common thing. Uh, Very quickly, worshiping the elements, the next error addressed is what is commonly referred to as the veneration of the elements. It states that worshiping the elements, the lifting them up or carrying them about for adoration is a practice to be denied. Again, the Roman Catholic Catechism, it says, in the liturgy of the Mass, we express our faith in the real presence of Christ under the species of bread and wine by, among other ways, genuflecting or bowing deeply as a sign of adoration of the Lord. 
the Catholic Church has always offered and still offers to the sacrament of the Eucharist, the cult of adoration, not only during Mass, but also outside of it, reserving the consecrated host with the utmost care, exposing them to the solemn veneration of the faithful and carrying them in procession. So, of course, since the Roman Catholic Church teaches that the consecrated bread and wine are the physical body and blood of Christ, they are to be worshipped and adored in the same manner as one would worship and adore the Lord Jesus himself. Outside of the Mass, the Eucharistic host is regular, regularly displayed in uh, a monstrance uh, near the altar during the week. So anyone could come in at any point during the week and they can see the elements and they can pray because they're praying, of course, they think to the presence of Christ. The Catholic Catechism says that adoration is the first attitude of man acknowledging that he is a creature before his creator. It exalts the greatness of the Lord who made us and the almighty power of the Savior who set us free from evil. Adoration is homage of the Spirit to the King of glory, respectful silence in the presence of the ever greater God. Adoration of the thrice holy and sovereign God of love blends with humility and gives assurance to our supplications. Now, of course, Protestants reject the veneration of the elements in any way for to render worship or adoration to any kind of common elements, even those that are set aside for holy purposes, is blatant idolatry. And Roman Catholicism, even during... uh, Leading up to Easter, they have a a whole week called Adoration where people will sign up in their local uh, congregation and they will come and spend time for an hour or two hours and they simply sit and adore the elements. In other words, they stare at a loaf of bread and a cup of wine um, because this is supposed to be the body and blood of Christ. It is blatant idolatry as they worship a loaf of bread and a cup of wine. Well, we are over time, so we won't get to finish on that, but we will pick that up next time as we continue studying our confession. So let's pray together. Lord, thank you again for this time. I pray, Lord, that even this evening as we come to the Lord's Supper table, that we do so with hearts of thankfulness and praise. And uh, Lord, that you would provide for us all of these things that we have considered as the purposes of the supper. Uh, Most of all, that we would have a greater love and appreciation for the Lord Jesus Christ and that our lives would be lived in faithfulness unto him all the days of our life. And we pray you do all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.